The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer. We've enjoyed bringing this show since 2005. Your host is Mari Frank, a local attorney since 1985. She's a certified information privacy professional. Mari's testified many times on privacy issues in Congress and the California legislature. You may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Mari, what's our show about this morning? Well, Lloyd, today we're going to be talking about various issues of privacy and international privacy laws and how it affects the United States. And we are just thrilled because today we are welcoming a guest all the way from the East Coast, Lee Matheson, who is currently a Weston Fellow with the International Association of Privacy Professionals, for which I am a CIPP member myself. So at the Weston Research Center, Lee focuses on developing issues in the United States and international privacy law. He's a graduate of the Ohio State University Moritz College of Law, which they do a lot of great things in privacy there as well. So thank you so much for joining us, Lee. Thank you, Mari. I'm happy to be here. Okay, so this must be a real interesting fellowship that you have, and let's talk a little bit about some of the exciting things that are happening, and maybe some of the scary things that are happening, too. So, you know, in the United States, we, you know, we've had passwords, and we have, I I have the new iPhone X, which is, you know, looking at my eye to turn on, and we had the biometric with the thumb. So, do you, what do you think is coming in the United States in terms of greater focus on biometric privacy? Well, I certainly think uh, that we're going to see more movement in biometric privacy law in the United States over the next several years, uh, precisely because, uh, as you gave the example of the uh, the iPhone X and its facial scanning um, technology, there are a lot more vectors for capturing biometric information about consumers on the market now than there were five years ago. And five years from now, I'm certain that there will be even more, you know, biometric information about consumers sort of out there in the ether uh, than there is now. Uh, it's, in, it's a handy way to individualize consumers if you're a company. It also feels secure. Um, uh, I myself, I have an iPhone, that, uh, an older one, that uses a fingerprint scan uh, to unlock. Um, but at the same time, uh, it does create concerns for privacy because any biometric identification uh, system, for example, uh, naturally creates an individualized and unique identifier stored in the database for everybody associated with that. Um, So there have been a number of states that have passed state-level biometric privacy uh, laws. Uh, I know uh, Illinois is a particularly prominent example. Uh, as is Texas. Um, I, my understanding is 
there are some concerns on the business side of things as these laws go into effect uh, that there is a liability exposure risk as well. Um, one anecdote that comes to mind is there have been a number of uh, lawsuits in the civil in the civil side of things in Illinois related to employer use of employee biometrics, fingerprint biometrics, uh, for the purposes of time cards. Mm. Uh, basically, that the the uh, employees weren't really given the opportunity to consent to the, the you know collection and use of their biometric information, uh, and that this violated the rights that they were granted by the passage of the state level privacy law. So I think it. It will be interesting to see how that shakes out. Um, and I think this is the sort of thing that you're much more likely to see in the United States, at least, uh, state-level action on rather than uh, a, a federal um, privacy law. Right, right. And California has been such a privacy leader. Um, I, I wondered what was going on. I know we've talked about privacy biometric privacy in California, but I don't know if we're really uh, one of the leaders. Let's talk a little bit about some of the dangers. Like I, I worry about false positives and false negatives. Sometimes with my own phone, I luckily, um, I do have my, my password numbers, you know, my four numbers that I can put in when my phone won't go on. Like it won't, if I'm, in bed and it's dark, I can't see my face enough, so it won't work. But there are other times that I'm thinking, why isn't it working? You know, I'm looking right at it. So there are these false positives and false, um, you know, false negatives that I worry about. And, um, you know, whether you can get into your computer or not, you know, that's pretty, uh, it seems that there, there has to be backups for all these things just in case there's something that doesn't work. But that's not the privacy issue. I worry about uh, who is Apple sharing my facial scan with, right? Or your, or your thumbprint with, or can it get hacked and somebody can use that eventually to get into, let's say, a bank account. So those are some of the worries I have. Right. Uh, and, and all of those concerns, I think, become magnified as more and more companies move toward biometric identifiers as way, handy ways of identifying their consumers. Uh, like you said, the issue with um, you know, false positives or false negatives on a facial scan, uh, and this I don't have a... The source in front of me, but I, I recall reading a, a sort of anecdotal news story about how uh, Apple's facial identification, for example, had been defeated by some guys with a 3D printer. Mm. Um, it, it, and, you know, my own phone, if I hold my thumb at the wrong angle, doesn't let me in. Uh, now, like you said, there's a four-digit backup uh, to a lot of these older iPhones, but what happens when we move away from that? Uh and, and, yes, I think there, there is an issue, um, particularly, you know, some people are, are uncomfortable with the idea of these private companies um, collecting huge amounts of biometric information that individually identify people in databases, particularly facial recognition or, or fingerprint databases, uh, because that information might end up being shared with the government. Um, now, I don't, there are a number of, different ways to approach that thought, but certainly we don't require a national fingerprint registry. I mean, anyone who's worked for 
the federal government has been fingerprinted, any lawyer right. who's done a, a background check for a state bar association has been fingerprinted. Right. But that's not something that we expect for, you know, members of society at large, people who aren't in sensitive positions, yet def- that might be the de facto result of the proliferation of this kind of technology. You know um, what, yeah, and what worries me, Lee, is if if somehow that's hacked, you know, I have dealt with literally thousands of victims of identity theft when their social security number was stolen. And I I worry about how that could perhaps happen with someone um, grabbing the database of facial recognition or thumbprint or, God forbid, even DNA, and somehow using that to take over somebody's identity and getting into whatever um, or getting a job saying that that's them. And so I, I, I worry about the government and I worry about hackers somehow being able to get into this stuff. We've heard about so many security breaches, right? Yes, uh, and I think that's also a, a perfectly valid concern when it comes to these big databases of really any personally identifying, you know, individually identifying information, uh, like a social security number, if it becomes ubiquitous to use a fingerprint or a facial scan or a genetic profile even as your identifier, it just becomes another vector for a potential identity thief to gain control of, you know, to to impersonate you. So right. The primary um, mechanism for that, like you said, would be to take out a credit card or maybe even apply for a job. Um, and I guess, you know, my, my worry would be that even more than a social security number, if you were able to successfully impersonate someone using your, your genetic, you right. know, using genetic information or a fingerprint, I get the, the imprimatur of that sort of information, I guess, to me at least, and maybe this is just, you know, the faith in science, right? If, if someone comes to me with a genetic record identifying them as someone, I'm probably even less likely to be skeptical. Um, right, right. And and that but, uh, and that and that's hard to prove. I mean, I've I've helped victims as you know as an attorney to help them, and I can tell you that. Um, it's so hard with the social security number that everybody said, gee, I wish they would take my DNA. But then you don't know what they might do with that. And, and then, of course, you worry about DNA, that if they have your DNA, then they could maybe not want to give you insurance because if they give you insurance and they know that you have um, more than, you know, you have some something in your background that you're very uh, possibly going to get cancer or some other terrible dreaded disease that they maybe not want to insure you or give you a home loan, you know? So there's all sorts of scary uh, scenarios with people getting our various biometric information because that's something we can't change, (laughs) right? Right. Uh, It it is actually my understanding that... um, Federal law, at least on the point of employment and uh, insurance discrimination, does prohibit the use of genetic information. So you can't, uh, an employer can't deny someone, um, you know, employment based on the fact that pre-employment they took a blood sample, ran a screening, and this person's likely to suffer from some disease that will be very expensive in in five or six years. I think that's um, the case, the genetic 
uh, non-discrimination acts. Um, but the but, truth of the matter is they can always say there was some other reason. Do you know what I mean? Right. And that, that's, um, I think, the challenge is they could, of course, they know that they can't discriminate that way. But in essence, it could still happen. And that I think that's, that's the big concern. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Um, that, that kind of discrimination is extremely pernicious because for someone who just was told that they didn't have a job, it would be very hard to detect. Um, I mean, you know, lacking substantial private financial resources to file a lawsuit and go through the discovery process and find some sort of smoking gun, right? Uh, which there very well might not be, you know, the, demonstrating that even if this sort of dem- discrimination is theoretically illegal, the, you know, demonstrating that it occurred at all right. is tough. Um, and I, I actually, when I was in, in law school, I was in a, a seminar with one of my professors, Dennis Hirsch, um, on sort of the subject of big data analytics and big data um, uh, algorithms. Uh, and one of the interesting things that came up is that the, these modern consumer profiling algorithms can also even unintentionally start to create proxies for mm. discriminants, for things, uh, for, for factors that would be illegally discriminatory if used directly. Mm. Um, so if a company, you know, collects 4,000 data points about every new hire uh, and runs them through a black box algorithm that's supposed to predict that employee's, you know, rate or how much they're going to cost, how much money they're going to make the company right. when they're likely to leave, some of these algorithms might essentially start predicting a proxy for someone having uh, a disorder only not even the company knows that this is happening. All they know is that the algorithm is oh. saying there's a high likelihood that this person will be expensive. Wow. You know? oh, God. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like this artificial intelligence is going to take over for us, right? That's that's scary. Hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit, now that we've scared everybody about their biometric information, <laughs> and, and me, and I, I still, you know, like, my son was so excited, you know, he's such a techie, and when I said, okay, I'm going to get the new iPhone, he go, oh, that's great, Mom, that's so great, because I had, like, a 6 <laughs> plus. I'm so proud of you, Mom, you, you do all this techie stuff, but then i like, oh, my God, it was bad enough when it was my thumbprint, now it's my facial skin, <laughs> you know, so that kind of worried right. me you know you got to trust apple or trust that apple isn't going to have security breaches or they're not going to share it with other people or whatever you know i, I always have these worries of like in the like the book 1984 where someone will take my facial scan and then put it in a uh protest or put it something put me in with um skinheads or something you know and and ruin my reputation that suddenly i am this white supremacist or something you know i mean you never know what i mean there's so much creativity out there in the criminal world and and even in the political world right (laughs) and uh and yeah i i absolutely agree and also you know of course technology is only getting better the ability to seamlessly edit new content into digital video or into photographs or you know what have you is 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 only going to get better um and if most of us who are active in the internet age voluntarily surrender the tools to make that sort of thing possible all the time i mean we upload 
tons of pictures of ourselves to right. LinkedIn and Facebook and, you know, even Twitter. Right, um, right. So if you want to create, you know, if you have the right tools, it's not impossible to yeah. create a pretty convincing facsimile of a person and stick it in whatever situation you want. Yeah. Um, and that now, could, I yeah, now, you know, doing something like that, let's say somebody really wanted to ruin your reputation and then you were applying for a job and then they showed a picture of you, you know, in some compromising position or something like that where they wouldn't want you to be there because it would ruin the reputation of the company. So, you know, I mean, people can do nasty things. Of course, they could, you know, they could do that right now, but with a facial scan, it's, um, you know, it's even more unique, right? Uh, the identifiers are unique. So, oh my gosh. Well, let's... Right. <laughs> now now I'm getting more depressed in. about my iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. So now let's talk about another scary thing, the Internet of Things, okay? We're seeing the Internet of Things, um, these devices all over the place. And of course, I have the new Apple phone too. <laughs> I mean, the Apple uh, Watch. So... Um, Oh, my goodness. You know, is there going to be increased focus on data subjects, you know, rights with regard to the Internet of Things? Do you think that's coming too? Um, it wouldn't surprise me if something to that effect, uh, at least at, at the state level, it, again, I'm talking about uh, the United States because uh, the rest of the world, Europe in particular, has a, a quite different approach to this issue than we do. Uh, but I think the Internet of Things, the way that I compartmentalize it at least, is into two sort of broad categories. You have, you know, wearables uh, or personal devices like your, your Apple Watch or right. your Fitbit or, right. you know, even your phone these days really sort of qualifies. It tracks your steps and your right. location and, you know, that microphone is always, it at least could always be on. Right. Uh, and then I would put uh, sort of smart home technology in a different category, uh, things like uh, the Amazon Echo or Google Home Assistant or, um, you know, yeah. those, those technologies, I think, are the, the other side of, of the two, at least, parts of the Internet of Things that interact with the consumer sort of affirmatively. Right, um, right. And then I guess, you know, you have, you have other stuff. You do everything from uh, smart appliances to... You know, you, 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 you smart cars, about, like, right? Smart cars, right? And I think the next big one coming down the pipe is going to be autonomous vehicles. Um, now there right. are a number of challenges. I think legal, and I, I think about everything legally because I'm a lawyer, and I think that's mandatory. Mm. Uh, <laughs> that's what we're trained but, uh, to do, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so the second that people started talking about autonomous vehicles, I immediately went, "Well, who's going to be liable when one of them crashes?" Right, but, uh, right, right, right. Uh, well, we already saw that, right, with Tesla. You know, with their, with right. their. So, I mean, obviously, if the, if it's a, uh, if someone is, you know, got a car that they say this car is going to be working automatically, and you just sit back and relax, then of course the car is going to have to be manufactured unless there's something else in between, right? Well, and of course, then you get into a fight between the, the car manufacturer, maybe, and maybe the driver's insurance, and maybe the software right. developer who made the technology that drives right. the car. They're all going to basically fight to stick it to each other. Right, they're all going to point uh, fingers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but, 
uh, to you know, sort of return to the the Internet of uh, Things question. Yeah, I think, uh, and this even ties back to what we were talking about initially, where these all just become more points at which data about us is collected. Uh, what makes the Internet of Things um, more unique in this sense is that it's even less obvious right. data is being collected in this context. I right. think. Um, then it is where, like, even if you go online to shop, you have to type in your information, your address, your credit card, whatever. Right. So whatever it's something you're going. doing intentionally, and you, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's something you have control um, over, right? Right. But, you know, when you buy a Fitbit and you just want to track, you know, your own steps or exercise or whatever, you right. don't necessarily have a good window into the precision with which that information is being stored about you right. by someone else and uh, and where it's going. And how it could be intercepted, um, right? Right. Well, and that's that's the other thing, too. Um, you know, these either either intercepted or, or just compromised. If, right. You know, Fitbit has a huge database of all of its users. Of course, they have a security concern. Right. Um because that information is valuable for all sorts of reasons. Sure. Uh, um, and, and the same can be said for, you know, uh, the technology associated with personal home assistance. Uh, I know a lot of people, there, you see some, some mild hysteria from time to time about this concept that we're, you know, putting omnidirectional mics in all of our houses that are on all the time. Um, my, I think that's a little bit overblown from my understanding of how... Um, personal home assistance function, there's actually a, a non-internet co connected computer that listens for the wake word before anything starts getting communicated back to the... Uh, but you know what I was thinking yeah. about that? I have Alexa. That's another one that my son ordered for me, you know, Alexa. So I have Spotify right. and I can say, Alexa, play Beatles music or whatever. And then I realize when we're watching TV and, and then all of a sudden somebody has some advertisement for Alexa, she wakes up. You could hear her wake up, you know? You hear the sound. Right. And then I thought to myself, well, she must be listening all the time to hear if her name is called, which then that kind of worried me. Like, you know, if I'm saying something, you know, to my husband personal or to my kid or whatever, um, you know, is am I being watched or listened to all the time? And who could pick up on that? So, you know, that kind of hit me the other day when when the um, you know commercial came on and said Alexa, and she went, yes. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, my God. <laughs> right. Uh, now, uh, I'll preface the following statement with, uh, I sort of consider myself an educated idiot in, in the matters of, like, the actual technical, technical functioning of these devices. Right, right, right. Um, so, you know, take all this with a grain of salt, and a computer engineer can possibly correct me at a later date. <laughs> but my understanding is that um, um, devices like Alexa have one processor that only listens for the wake word uh, and is not... Is not connected to, you know, Amazon or, or Google, if it's Google Home or whatever. Um, so it's not, you know, recording everything that you do all the time. Um, and then when the wake word is detected, it activates a separate um, computer system, you know, basically computer inside of the device that does communicate what you say to the, the provider's servers. Um, now, of course, that's the description of how the device works, but not being a computer engineer myself, even I actually also have a, an Amazon Echo. <laughs> but, you know, even if I disassembled the thing to look, 
I wouldn't. You wouldn't have. know, yeah. And you don't know if it can be if it can be modified either. You know, if it can be like if somebody hacks into that and modifies it. So you know, although she she did, you know, when it was the um, she she's pretty smart. <laughs> you know, she I can ask her questions. You know, like who was going to win the Super Bowl, and she actually told me right. <laughs> Was gonna win the Super Bowl, so right. uh, you know that's a that's a little bit scary, but yeah, I mean it. I can tell you how it really impacts people that they don't even think about, like even these little cameras. Like we have a, a camera that we put at the front door that um, it's called Ring, and so anytime somebody comes to my front door, it rings on my phone, and whether I'm there or not, I can talk to them, and so they think that's I'm home. Funny. What? Oh. Yeah, that's called Ring. Yeah. And so we were in Hawaii, and our grandson was staying at our house, and he went out to do the garbage, and we go, and the ring went off, and then it, it, it went bing on my on my phone, and I go, hey, Ryan. He goes, hey, I, where are you? And we said, we're still in Hawaii. You know? <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, <laughs> so that was kind of neat. Although then I have a client going through a divorce, and um, her husband put one of these little tiny cameras in her bedroom, um, you know, in a house that he she was living in, not him. And, um, and oh. so that, yeah, that became a huge issue. Luckily, I mediated the case, and it's okay. But it's, you know, that is the kind of stuff that goes on. You don't know these cameras are so tiny, and, and it works just like Ring. So every time, it's called Ness, every time there was any activity in that bedroom, it would ring on his phone. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, talk about illegal and invasion of privacy and, you know, law enforcement, illegal type stuff. <laughs> but, right. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's the stuff is just overwhelming. I, you know, we might as well just quit right now. I mean, it's <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and I think, you know, in, in the U.S., you do see, so the, the activities, at least in the case that you described, you know, that's pretty, that's, that's, that's like against the law no matter where you are. Right. But it does get more dicey when you're talking about just, you know, recording someone else without their consent because technology only makes something like that easier. Right, um, and you right. know you have different approaches to that in different jurisdictions in the country. You know, like wiretapping an active phone line is federally illegal, but right. simply recording someone's conversation with a microphone that's really hard to detect—that depends on the state you're in. Some some states are two-party consent states. Some some states are only one. Right, um, California is a two-party consent. So just so people are listening here, I want them to know that, and I also want them to know that it is illegal to put a camera in a bedroom or a bathroom or anything like that. It's totally, you know, it's against the penal code, the California penal code, as well as federal law. So just wanted to mention this since we're sitting on the campus and somebody might think it's a cute idea to put uh, a a camera in somebody's dorm room or something. I just don't want to see that happen. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Go ahead. Particularly, actually, that, that sort of ties into, I think, a push in the last year or two um, for laws that are specifically targeting uh, basically revenge porn. Where yes. you, you know, you have the surreptitious recording or after-the-fact publication of, you know, intimate details about somebody else. 
um, you know, usually in the in the context of a relationship that has been broken off. Right, or a divorce. Um, and I know there are a number <laughs> of states that have passed laws that specifically criminalize, uh, you know, the non basically non-consensual recording of right. somebody in an intimate setting. Right. Um, sounds like California is one of them. Yeah, yeah, we were one of the first. And, in fact, into this agreement that, that I mediated, we put in a uh, million-dollar liquidated damages in case anything ever appeared in any form whatsoever. The images appeared, in, you know, online, offline, whatever. Is uh, There's a liquidated damages clause, so... Uh, yeah, right. that was uh, that was. But even that as a solution is, you know, I guess that that's scary too, right? Because what if someone is, you know, uncollectible or proof against financial damages, or simply doesn't care, or is a hacker in some foreign jurisdiction that gains access to this information? You know, right, it, right. It, <laughs> but I still think it would go back. I thought about that, um, but it still would go back to the original person who. But for that person filming that, it would never have gotten into the hands of anybody else, even if it was hacked, you know. Or I, I right. wondered about, like, um, does, I mean, I keep this on my phone until I delete it. Like when somebody's at the door, I have it. It just, I don't always have time to delete it. So it's on my phone. Do you know what I'm saying? And so right. um, the the Nest works in the same way. We looked it up, and it works in the same way that, um, you know, about deleting it. But, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this. This is – we are out of time. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I know. That was so much fun. Well, okay. there's so much to talk about in privacy. Uh, I know. It's a blessing and a curse. Exactly. <laughs> well, Lee Matheson, you're wonderful. I'm so glad that you joined us. We'll have you back again. And so just give the website of the IAPP, and then it's time to go. Certainly. And, and thank you for talking to me, Mari. Uh, you can visit us at IAPP.org. Thank you so much, Lee. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.